0: The shortcode Podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.
1: Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcode Podcast.
2: Weird news. Fresh views. Helpful clues and interviews.
3: By students. For students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com.
0: Welcome back to The Shortcode Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Ettler. Here's some of what we've got to talk about on today's show.
3: So basically I started having doubts when I was in medical school about being a traditional doctor. I felt trapped and isolated. I wanted to create a place where trainees could be themselves.
2: You of course can go to a community college and take your prereqs. I'll be saying you can't. You may be looked at less competitively. I want
0: to thank our friends at Panacea Financial. Panacea Financial is a sponsor of this episode who want to tell you about their 2022 match week giveaway so stay tuned for that a bit later in the show i'll tell you more in the meantime i'm joined today in the studio by a lovely group of m1s like tracy chen say hi tracy
4: hey everyone what's up
0: we've got alec hansen hello hello matt engelkin is back howdy and grant stalker has returned everybody's an m1 here today yay except for our guest because if you thought that was all the people in the shortcut today, you'd be wrong. Because joining us from the internet is Dr. Allison Yarp. Hello, Dr. Allison Yarp.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.
0: It's good to have you here. Dr. Yarp reached out to us because she has observed and is one of many who don't fit neatly into the medical education narrative, which tends to speak only of creating doctors who see patients. So I thought it'd be fun to talk with Allison about the possibilities of, of, just what medical schools might want to do different for those people. So thanks for coming to to the show today.
3: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: So tell us about the narrative that medical schools and graduate medical education are so focused on that didn't work for you.
3: Well, you know, it's kind of hard to start just in the middle. So I think most people like me decided either in high school or junior high even younger maybe that they want to be a doctor so they start working towards that they go to high school they plan to go to college where they can do different activities and research and different things to get into medical school well they don't really realize like me what actually it entails until you're in the middle of it and then you're kind of thinking well I guess this is the only path forward so basically, I started having doubts when I was in medical school about being kind of a traditional doctor. I knew that I loved medicine and being in just the thick of it, but I didn't want to see patients every day and do just kind of the individualized approach to care. I was at that point doing my master's of public health. So I realized that public health might be more my speed and just a broader perspective of medicine and healthcare. So I Started having doubts and then realized, well, what else is there? So I kept going. I did my third year rotations. The only one that stuck out to me was psychiatry. So I ended up doing a psychiatry internship and thought that was it. The doubts continued. And so during my uh, second year of residency, I took leave for kind of various reasons. But during that time, realized I didn't want to go back. And ended up just resigning. And now I have just, <laughs> like this week, matched to preventive medicine residency at the Texas State Department of Health. It's something that I discovered actually during my intern I had never heard of preventive medicine residency. And it is, I think, just one option of many for people who maybe just don't want to do the kind of standard just going straight through medical school into residency and seeing patients approach. So So, that's kind of where I am now.
2: (laughs) So for us baby M1s, can you, can you explain what preventative medicine residency is?
3: Exactly. I'm happy to, because I had no idea either. (laughs) So it actually is, you'll learn these terms in uh, probably third year, fourth year of medical school when you're applying to match, but it's, what's called an advanced program. So basically you need to have already completed an intern year. So that could be a prelim year in medicine. It could be a year of a different residency entirely like I did. It could be something called a transitional year, which is kind of more from my understanding, just a little uh, more flexible in terms of rotations you can take and like you still do medicine, surgical rotations, but you can do more electives as well. So basically you do that and then because it's not inclu- the first year's not included in the residency you then go on to your next residency which is preventive medicine and it's two years so you will have done three years of residency total but during that those two years you end up with most people if they don't have one already will do an mph and you do a lot of public health rotations and clinical medicine aspects of it can vary but the requirement is really only a day of clinic a week and it's in things like Primary care and uh, infectious disease clinics. And like, I know for a fact that I'll probably be doing like refugee health screenings. And so it's things that make sense in the narrative of kind of prevention of disease and maintaining just good health and wellness for the population. So,
0: Alison, when you were in medical school, Uh did your school have someone or or an a department that uh was responsible for career advising, or did you just have to figure
5: this out?
3: So the funny thing is, I would say that our best career advising came from our peer advising program in I uh, like that occurred throughout the four years. And the reason I say it's funny is because I was one of the people in charge of it. Yes. <laughs> so
0: And uh, I think the message there is that even you didn't know of the possibilities.
3: Exactly. And so career advising, I would say most of it comes from the student affairs office in the undergraduate medical education offices. But for my school, a lot of our advising came from what was called Veritas. I was at the UT long school of medicine in San Antonio and it was peer advising combined with faculty advising, but it was The problem is there's so much to talk about, about being a medical student. I'm sure if you guys are all already familiar, that career advising, it can be hard to fit in if you just go under the assumption that everybody fits that traditional narrative. Yeah. So people are just thinking, oh, I just need to figure out what specialty I want to do. Not necessarily, well, what if I don't want to do that?
0: Allison, did you go to a state school or a private school?
3: It was for medical school. It was a state school. Okay. Yes, it was through the UT system. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, uh, so I work in student affairs, but I'm not an expert in the career advising field. I I do know that much of what we talk about in medical education is creating doctors that see patients. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm trying to think here. I'm thinking of like any discussion we've ever had that's involved in any of our classes so far. I don't think any of them have ever mentioned the possibility of being a doctor but not seeing patients outside the realm of like. Yeah, you think of like,
0: oh, okay, well, I could be a pathologist. You know, there's not a ton of patient contact in pathology or
2: I could be, you know,
0: I don't know. Radiologist. radiologist. Yeah, that's the, the other, other. That's other the other stereotype.
2: Those are the two that you can maybe get. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and you know, those are those are great. But I, I, you know, I think I think the problem for especially state schools is probably something along the lines of we get money from the state in order to create doctors that will care for the patients who reside in that state. I mean, that's really yeah. We take people from out of state, and we know that a bunch of them will leave the state when they go for the residency hopefully they'll come back but you know our whole goal is to is is my my understanding is our whole goal is to make doctors for iowa
5: yes but Um, who will
0: see patients
5: yeah that's the part that like i feel like might be dropped in the equation because like it seems a little naive to think that like public health workers and like preventative medicine doctors wouldn't you know, care for the people of Iowa, for this example, because they might not have that, you know, yeah. one-to-one interaction, but it's still a very, like, Iowa-centric thing if you look yeah. at it through that lens. Yeah. And, and I should say that that
0: when I say this, I don't think we have a huge ability to say, yeah, we'll take you as an MD, and if you don't want to see patients in some way or you don't want to go into the, you know, 18 specialties and however many subspecialties that the AMC acknowledges, you know, maybe you want to maybe you decide to go into business, but that's not something that we do.
3: Exactly. The problem is, for example, where I am in Texas, I, we do. This is actually my third match because we do have our own application system for medical school where you match to a medical school within Texas because laws and funding require that a certain percentage of yeah. uh, incoming students are all Texas residents. With the idea, like you said, that they'll hopefully stay in Texas. Unfortunately, I uh, we've opened up a ton of med schools, not many more residency slots. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that is a whole other issue.
0: Well, but, it's. I think it's related, uh, to be honest. I mean, I think it's very much related. What did you, you, yeah. you looked into the numbers, Tracy, what did you find?
4: So this is for 2021. We had 48,700 registered applicants, which about 42,508 actually like committed to it, but only 33,353 matched to residents, and I think about like a1,000 didn't match and could go for like soap or something for like a thousand.
0: that's the supplemental offer and acceptance program that you go through if you didn't match the first time around. Right uh, not sort not of a Washington second Maine. match. Okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, so that1,000 came like ended up with slots is what you're saying.
4: Yeah, so it's like about 14,000 applicants didn't get a match, and they were all fighting for like the 1,000 that I kind of like left. Is this the same
1: thing as the scramble? Where Yeah, that's what they they used to call it scramble. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay, just making sure I'm on the same (laughs) page. And
0: it was was more of a scramble in the old, just for background, it was more of a scramble in the old days or before the Supplemental Offer and Acceptance Program, because basically you called around Mm. to whoever you knew had open slots or who might have open slots, and You know, it was a bit more of a scramble. Now it's more like a second match, but so
2: did they remove the Benny Hill music playing the background before or after?
0: (laughs) Unfortunately. It's 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 a hard situation to find yourself in.
2: And that's another
0: that's another thing that I think about when I think of people who don't fit the narrative is people who the school says are qualified to be physicians. But that the system doesn't have a place for them. So that's another area where the narrative doesn't quite work.
4: I believe there was a bill introduced in Congress in 2019, the Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act. So it adds 15,000 Medicare-funded or supported residency positions over like a five-year period that starts last year, 2021. Yeah. So we'll have an increase of 50,000 residency positions, but we'll be able to catch up for all the med school students who are applying. Yeah, and, and don't
0: forget anybody who's, anybody who's matching is also competing with you know, I hate that word, but they're also competing with people from other countries who are trying to match. They're competing with people who didn't match last year. They're competing with, I mean, basically- People you
3: know, who soaked into a different specialty r- that r- yeah. then are trying to go back to their original choice. Ex- it's,
0: exactly.
3: Yeah.
0: And, you know, at some point it gets pretty messy in terms of like how many people are going to get physicians in a given year. But I also, again, I also think of the people who went into medicine, realized they didn't want to do patient care or or even do anything that resembled traditional doctoring, but are stuck because the cost of medical school is so high yeah, and they feel like that they must practice medicine in order to
1: recoup their own investment. Well, it seems like a lot of the, the medical... You know, having an MD degree, what you bring typically is clinical experience, right? So, for example, I think of engineering. They bring in doctors all the time to kind of consult on how they can improve the clinical experience of Uh a product. So even if you do decide you want to go a different route, you know, the idea I kind of have is that it seems like you have to at least go through residency to gain that clinical experience first, unfortunately, before you maybe dive into a different area.
0: Yeah. I mean, something similar to what Allison is doing, basically completing their yeah. first year to, yeah. to get that far. And then,
3: and then you can make a change. I think the way there's a few ways to approach this. I think a lot of medical training, like it's in kind of chunks. And so your medical school is all of your knowledge and exposure to kind of just the surface level of which there is a lot at the surface of every specialty and body system and everything that you learn is all, it just kind of, you create your knowledge foundation. And so there are some, I think, jobs out there that just require, you know, the subject matter expertise. However, I know from just doing my intern year that, you know, applying it and being an actual physician is different. Like, I mean, you, when you're a third year medical student, you see what it's like, but you don't really experience it. You kind of participate in patient care, but it's still hard to put yourself in the shoes of the resident and the attending as a third year. So I agree. It's like some of the problem is, and then a lot of jobs out there from my experience, which is in ending up in this kind of like gap year position. I uh, a lot of them require either board eligibility or certification in a specialty, even if the job is more, not necessarily requiring that clinical experience and exposure, which is why one of the things that I think the career advising aspect could be better is just allowing you to learn how to market and understand your soft skills that they talk about in business and kind of the corporate world, as well as just the skills you gain from being a medical student and all the experiences you've had up to medical school. So, and learning how to, you know, market those skills and write a resume and transfer your CV to a resume. So it's something that I think needs to be focused on is just understanding that people are going to, and it could be for people who also just end up not matching. They still need to know how to do something that year off. Yeah. So,
4: yeah.
0: So I guess the question is, you know, how should medical education do that, given that you know, we have a job to do according to our various state legislators and our priorities. You know, it's hard for me to imagine, it's it's hard for me to imagine like the dean of any medical school going, welcome, we want to make doctors out of you, but if you don't want to be a doctor in the traditional sense, we have all these other paths for you, which would be, that would be kind of the, the ideal in my mind, but I kind of don't see that happening
2: (laughs) i think it would take a lot of changing around kind of curriculum to allow more adaptability because right now it's pretty cookie cutter right all the everybody goes through the same thing exactly all at the same time you know ideally they do try and add a little bit of flavor to it with like electives and selectives that you can do but even those are still pretty limited so I think there would have to be a pretty large change in curriculum development to mm-hmm. allow for that kind of spread, which I don't know if that's really feasible.
5: The other kind of challenging thing is that most people take their electives like well into their medical school experience. And so mm-hmm. oh, if you're at the point where like you might take an elective kind of at the end of your fourth year after you've already applied to residency and then you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Well, you know, it sucks because you're too late. You've already you know applied to match and those kind of things so yeah it'd i mean be interesting, you could do what yeah. allison
0: did which is basically change your mind <laughs> um, but that feels yeah. risky doesn't it Allison? yeah,
5: yeah.
3: It, it it was risky and it's been an adventure in uh, uncertainty and finances <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah
3: thankfully i lucked out the only advantage is that right now student loans are frozen so then, <laughs> that's
2: I think... the only good thing yeah yeah Listeners,
0: if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to theshortcoats at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show.
2: Medical school is so prohibitively expensive. You are forced into becoming something that pays high. So you're you're coasting on residency salary until you can hit that attending money where you can finally pay off the two hundred thousand dollars plus of loans that you have. So if you want to go into, say, like nonprofit work and with a medical background, you're really going to have to do attending for a couple of years to not be drowning in debt to do what you really want to do. So I think that's a really big, big point that Allison brought up is the cost is insane.
3: Yeah, and that's where I think a better understanding of the programs out there that can help with student loan forgiveness is also important because, like you said, if you work at a nonprofit or an NGO or the government, you know, you can make those, what is it, 120 payments. And, yeah, it might be difficult during that time, but there are repayment programs and everything, but then you could end up with public student loan forgiveness or like I was recently looking it up, there's other programs out there, depending on what state you're in and what um, field you're in, that could potentially help. But the root cause of the problem is just the cost of medical education. So and the fact that when you leave medical school, you're doing the work of a physician, but you're paid not for that. (laughs) It's much lower than what you would expect. So and I think a lot of people outside of medicine don't even realize that.
2: I think the average, what is it? Do you get like $70,000 a year as a resident generally?
3: That is actually more likely high. to be in a state that is higher cost of living. I would say it's high 50s to low 60s. Crazy. I know. Yeah, it depends on just the cost. They do adjust it to cost of living and some programs have like subsidized housing, but it's still, still very difficult, so...
5: I think the other crazy thing is, like, even before then, you have, you know, medical school and just thinking about our clinical years where, you know, we, we basically work 60 to 80 hours a week. <laughs> and not only are we not getting paid, but we're having to pay, you know, 40000 to $80,000 to work a full-time job. Like, I understand that yes. there's a lot that has to come in from like the physicians and providers ends to give us that opportunity. But it's also a lot of money that we have to pay to, you know, have a job.
3: Yeah. And it's not necessarily paying for like always being educated. It's you're paying to like, for example, was it truly beneficial that I was on night float during my ob rotation? And then sometimes just sitting around waiting for patients to come in, but having to be there overnight and paying to be there. I don't know. But it's uh, there's ways to make it so that also you're not burned out by the time you leave medical training to enter residency where you're finally getting paid, but not enough.
0: I think, I don't know. I love all you guys. <laughs> I love all you guys. And it, it pains me to know that this sort of, that the in addition to the pressures of trying to figure out like what even all of your coursework means that there's an even uh, there's an even greater level of uncertainty that some people experience about their career choice and their prospects it just makes me sad. i just
2: want i just want everybody to be happy just world peace yeah (laughs) shortcode podcast twenty twenty three. what
0: is wrong with that so you know i would be the tagline (laughs) what i would like to see personally is some acknowledgement That there are that there is more to. There are more possibilities than just those that we that we explicitly lay out. I'd like. I would love to see a world where all of these possibilities are not just considered, but actually like planned for, and you know, to the point where we're not dealing. Yeah, and integrated to the point where you know you know coming in that if you can stay in med school without doing something crazy and getting yourself kicked out that you will have a path forward, that it's not a complete disaster. If you go, Holy shit, this is not what I, you're not trapped. Yeah. You're not trapped. So you though, Allison Mm -hmm. have been working on in the past year on creating a space for physicians who are in your position as well as other sort of uncertain positions, haven't you? Yes.
3: Yeah. So I'm, I, and it came from, the fact that I felt trapped and isolated when I was considering leaving the first time in medical school and then when I was considering leaving in residency. I realized social media was too public to post anywhere that I was considering that had these thoughts because what if it got back to someone? What if someone saw it and then told, like, leadership at my program or something? And the anonymous forums are as beneficial as they can be sometimes, can uh, really devolve very quickly. So I wanted to figure out a way to create a place where trainees from student to resident to fellow or anyone in between could just create a community that could be supportive and safe and a place for people to be themselves. So they're not hiding behind a username. They're not out in the world where people, they would be concerned that someone will tell on them. If some, they say something that is goes against the narrative or is not in line with what is considered traditional. I
0: find this darkly humorous that, yep. you know, there's this common fear among students or among trainees that there are things that you don't speak of. Um,
3: and the list is long
0: and the it's, it's a, it's a pre, yeah, exactly. And that if you do speak of them, if you do go against this narrative, you will be castigated at the, at a, at a bare minimum, or you will be, you know, outcast and it's not fair. And it's also, I gotta say, it's also not entirely accurate. Not that it doesn't happen, but I think the problem is that the, the imbalance is so great between, you know, what you're trying to accomplish and the money you're trying to to spend doing it, that it creates a level of fear, sort of like, well, it's, it's not likely that if I talk about not wanting to see patients someday, that my school will kick me out or that a residency program director will see this. But if it does,
2: holy shit. I mean, that fear even goes to the basic foundations, right? Yeah. The amount of conversations yeah. that we as M1s have had about being afraid of the power dynamic of an attending, like say mm-hmm. the attending is doing something that's wrong, like they said something racist or whatnot. Mm-hmm. The ability of us to speak up because of the influence that could have on our like grades or future prospects is like that fear is so there that it's ever present in our mind. Mm -hmm. Iowa does have good things for us to use to combat that. But I know other people from other medical schools who don't have that backup. And so that fear is there like every
0: day, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I do know, I mean, I gotta be honest. I do know of at least one case where, you know, somebody got kicked out of their first year of residency for, what they felt was standing up to an, you know, a wrong. Yeah. And so I hate to feed into that narrative, but it's important to understand. It's not like it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, and I don't know the real story. I mean, I know, I know one side of the story, but I don't know all sides of the story. And so, you know, I can't say that there wasn't other reasons for sure. Right. But you know, it's it's pretty, Mm -hmm. it's kind of sus.
2: It is for sure.
0: Um, so you're you're developing this community.
3: Yes, uh, yeah. I'm developing this community that is been a work in progress. It's something that I didn't really know how to create at first. So it took just kind of stumbling on some different platforms for me to figure out exactly how to create it. So it's called <laughs> I wanted a name that wasn't specific to medicine to make it as private as it could be. And so <laughs> It's called the Marco Community, and Marco stands for Mentoring, Advising, Relating, Connecting. So it does have a meaning (laughs) as the acronym. nice. But, (laughs) But it's hosted on a platform called Mighty Networks, which has a fantastic mobile app, and it's structured similar to a Facebook group where you can have posts and polls and pictures, and there's subgroups within it that can be private as well. And you can have a membership profile. And the idea is that it will always be completely free to the people who need it. So that would be anybody, once they're accepted and starting medical school, all the way up to being a PGY, good Lord, I mean, it goes on forever, seven. Like, (laughs) you know, it can be all the way up to then or anywhere in between. So I wanted a place for people who want to find connection and support through shared experience because i like for example in my situation I knew there were people out there that had these thoughts and wanted to leave or had already left I just didn't know how to find them and I was too scared to try and find them on the traditional platforms. And it wasn't until I actually left that I ended up posting or commenting on posts in some Facebook groups. And every time I made a comment about being either in the process of leaving or having left already, the amount of messages I got in return made me realize that this was something we needed. And so it's not connected to other social media. It's closed with a request to join form, kind of like you would do for a regular Facebook group that has like that little form you fill out. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to make sure that, you know, everybody that requests to join is an actual trainee. But the idea is that until you're approved to join, you can't see who's a member. Google is unable to index inside the group. So it's completely private. And once you're inside, there's going to be rules and a code of conduct with moderation. So it's not anonymous. The requirement is that people have at least their first name and first initial, but it's so that people can trust each other and trust the quality of the maybe response that they're getting and that it also allows for, I think, greater respect between people. So if someone is being disrespectful in from, you know, the lowest extent to just outright hostility, related to someone's identity or something we can actually deal with it and address it without and like know you know exactly how to handle it currently there's also subgroups with level of training so there'll be like a group for medical students a group for residents fellows and then anybody who just feels like they don't fit any of those categories so people maybe who were medical graduates who didn't match or maybe medical graduates who are still trying to find their path and I have lots of other plans for it as well. But right now, it's just trying to grow it and make sure that there's enough people in it that people actually find use from it. So,
0: well, I like this plan. How can people find out more about you and uh, Marco community? So,
3: um, is it Marco me,
0: or is it Marco community?
2: <laughs> uh, Very important branding Marco, decision Marco right here.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, the best part is the domain is members.marco.community. That will take you to the Mighty Networks platform. And then you'll see the page where it says request to join a little more information about it. And then you can click and fill out the form.
0: Great.
3: So for the social media for it, where I'm trying to promote it and work to grow it is I, uh, depending on what the platforms allow, it's Marco dot community on Instagram, Marco underscore community <laughs> on Twitter. So probably the best place to find it right now, if you're, eligible for it and you're interested feel free to join at the website but if you're I know I'm sure you have pre-med viewers and people who maybe not um, in medical school yet that maybe will want to keep it in mind follow us on Instagram or Twitter and so you can be reminded when it's your turn to join and then for me it's just Allison Yarp MD pretty much on all platforms thankfully I have a very unusual last name that allows me to do that
1: fantastic
3: <laughs> oh yeah it's very easy it was available everywhere
1: thanks for sharing with us yeah, yeah i appreciate yeah, it I definitely you. Need to check this out after the show
3: something that i'm just trying to it's one of those things i would love to beta test it at like a specific program that it would require the idea behind it is requiring it to be beta tested at multiple programs at once because that's the point is that we can have a shared experience irrespective of distance
2: sure
3: so um trying to grow it organically so, but I think the point is that I just want to leave people with is that you're not alone in this journey.
0: Yes. So. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, Allison, for joining us on the podcast today. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks. Elf. Yeah. Thank,
3: you. thank, thank you. you. It was really fun.
0: All right. Take care.
3: Bye for you guys. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Our sponsor this week is panacea financial as a bank founded by two MedPeds physicians. Panacea financial isn't just seeking out doctors as a business market They're dedicated to helping doctors and train. Panacea offers loans, checking accounts, and concierge banking to medical students. Concierge banking, my friends? Have you ever been offered concierge anything? (laughs) For our negative money? (laughs) No. Right now, they're also running a giveaway to students matching in 2022. Five students will be chosen to receive $500 awards. Entry is free. Check out their giveaway today at panaceafinancial.com slash match 2022. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. Thanks, Panacea Financial, for your support of the Shortcode Podcast. Uh, Listeners, go check them out, please. Shortcodes, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank Thank you. We've got a listener question from Nicole, who it sounds like is just starting on this path. Let's hear from Nicole.
3: Love the podcast. Question for you all. Does it look bad to take prerequisites at a community college, especially if they're online? I don't think the chem classes would be. I asked UConn about this for their MD program, and they said they preferred a four-year college program, but wouldn't disqualify you for community college. What do you think? Backstory, I'm an accountant and love my job. However, I've always been in the medical field for the majority of my career. I just finished my bachelor's in accounting, so I really just need to take the prerequisites. I get it's not as easy as asking this, but I'd love your thoughts. Your podcast has definitely helped ease my fears of being 27 and just now attempting to start this road to an MD school.
4: Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Ah, the old community college (laughs) question. Seems like a cost-effective and easier option, but what do you guys think?
4: No, everywhere I go, people always seem to like ask them on like, you know, sites and forums like SDN or Reddit or whatever. It always seems like the consensus is that try not to take your prereqs at community college, which kinda sucks because like community college, at least the one when I took my non prereqs, it was just like a couple hundred dollars for a credit versus going to like college is like a couple thousand dollars. But the consensus does seem to like take your prereqs at like a four-year accredited college because the science classes tend to be a little bit harder and will prepare you for med school more so than maybe like prereqs at community college but it kind of varies.
2: I think the content is going to be the same generally whether you go to community college or a uh, four-year college but I agree with Tracy pretty much every consensus I've ever seen anywhere says take your prereqs at a four-year granting program whether it be because they think it prepares you more whether they think it's more competitive so if you get an a in that class it looks better there's a variety of different things that could be at play here obviously we're not program directors so we don't know for sure we just can from our experience let you guys know that four-year degree granting programs for prereqs have been pretty much the standard
0: so i yeah we aren't program directors, but I do have access to one. I I spoke with Kathy Mullenbrook, our director of admissions, and it's kind of a complicated question. Similar to UConn's response, we think that most school would be more inclined to treat those hard science classes at a four-year institution with more deference than one at a community college. You're going to have to check with the schools that you apply to because it is possible that they will just say no prerequisites from community college. Now we do accept community college coursework and we accept online coursework from accredited universities. We'll even take advanced placement and college level examination program credits if they show up on a college transcript. We are going to be much happier if you take bio, chem, physics, biochem and math at a four year college. And perhaps you can get away with taking English, social behavioral sciences and humanities courses at a community college and that might save you a few bucks.
1: I was just going to say, I was going to echo that Dave where I took all of my, you know, doing undergrad here. I had a pre-med advisor who kind of told me, kind of walked me through what classes I'd need to take at Iowa before applying to Carver. But I would just give a plug to take anything else that you can at a community college. I found Save it- Save a lot of money. Save mm-hmm. money. You can do it in the summer oftentimes to yep. make your heavy pre-med semesters a little easier. And so don't, you know, discard the idea, but just figure out what yeah. classes will work. Yeah,
0: here's the thing. I mean, sad to say you are in competition- with many other people on getting into any individual MD program. So this means that in any given year, an admissions committee may be looking at a bunch of people who did all of their coursework at a four-year institution. And in that case, you may find yourself on the wait list or denied an an interview if the rest of your application isn't super convincing and compelling. So you may have to work a little bit harder in other areas of your application.
2: And that's the key there, right? It's like... You, of course, can go to a community college and take your prereqs, 100%. Nobody's saying you can't do that. It's just you may be looked at less competitively, and that's the unfortunate reality of medical school applications. So Mm -hmm.
0: let's say you're applying, you know, at Iowa. You want to make sure that you have incredible answers to, well, credible, credibly incredible (laughs) answers to to the all-important questions of why do you want to be an MD as opposed to something else, and why do you want to come to Iowa? Make sure you've got that nail, and the yeah. key word here is compelling. People love stories. You want to make sure you have a great MCAT score and great uh, grades wherever you took your your classes. In this, in in Nicole's case, she had a career, or she's she's had a career. It sounds like in you know sort of m- medicine adjacent. So I don't know. She didn't say exactly, but maybe she worked in a hospital doing her accounting. So that's actually good. That's a point in your favor. You had. You, you you were out there working in in the world world of work Boy, I'm yeah and they okay. and they
2: love that like it's a love, it's it. a good thing you yeah know, not, you i know. mean don't be discouraged because you're non-traditional i mean i worked as a research coordinator at ucsf for a while and one of my friends who was also a research coordinator was a la- mandarin language major in college and took like four years out of college studied abroad and uh, I think it was like Hong Kong and whatnot and got into medical school and mm-hmm. formed her narrative around her journey yeah. going through that process and shaping that on how she worked it into medical school so don't discount what you're doing now and make sure to include that story into your narrative
0: yeah and that was going to be Sort of my next point, which is make sure that your activities tell the story of a student that the admissions committee can't help but be intrigued by. And these comp- these concepts are true for all applicants, but I, they're probably especially true in a situation where the school is interviewing hundreds of people for a small number of slots. We did I, I said this on the show a few times. We did 700 interviews last this past cycle for 150 slots. So you know, mm-hmm. it, to some extent, it's a numbers game. And don't be discouraged by your first uh, rejection if that happens. Or your first denial, I guess we should say.
2: Yeah, it was going to be many. I applied <laughs> <do it> again. <laughs> I applied three times to med school, so it happens, guys.
5: Nice, but you're here. I'm here. Look I at you. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. I think one thing, like, has been mentioned, is having that story before going into med school is something that every admissions committee wants to see. Obviously, they're trying to choose the people that are going to be the best doctors possible. But in order to be one of the best doctors possible, you need to be an interesting person and a person that people want to be around and so having that history and that career gives you kind of that story to sh- say like why are you here and why do we want you here yeah. um there's obviously things that are going to come up as like red flags not that that's a bad word not red flags but reasons that they might not want you and so having that story gives them a reason to want you there it also
0: sort of proves that you've thought real hard about this. If you can provide compelling answers to those two important questions, why Iowa and why or why wherever and why MD, if those answers are compelling enough and not just, well, I want to help people and I live in Iowa already.
2: Yeah, don't do that. Please don't write that yeah. up. <laughs> It just
0: shows that you've given some thought to... These questions, and that you it, it gives something else for it, it gives something important for interviewers or for admissions committees to hang their hats on. It gives them more surety, more certainty that you will last in the program, and that you will actually become a doctor. Yeah,
4: twenty seven is
0: never too old. I'm twenty
5: six. Yeah. How old are we? I know, Matt. Matt's a, Matt's a baby. I'm a baby. I'm twenty two, and I'll be twenty two for a while. Yeah, I got you. I'm twenty three. How old are you, Tracy? I'm twenty four. Okay. I'm the old man in the group. I you're
4: think. 26.
5: 26.
2: And I'm
0: 52.
5: And <laughs> oh, God. And there's people in the medical school that are older than us. I think the oldest oh, MD is in our grade, in the M1 class, is 36, I believe. Yep, so you're never I've too had, old. We've had 40 and 50 year olds. Uh, you're you're never too program. old to go down the career path that you think is destined for you, and that's an important thing to yeah, remember. They have like
1: the most certainty of why they want to be here in the first place. They're the most focused and have a story to tell. So, yeah, yeah.
0: for sure. All right, well, that's our show. Grant, Matt, Alec, Tracy, thanks for being on the show with me.
2: Thanks, there. Thank thank you. You. Thanks for
4: having us.
0: And what kind of dingus would I be if I didn't thank you, shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Our editors are Maddie Walline and Nick Lind. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week.